0: Welcome to Live Well and Thrive, a podcast recognizing the hard work, dedication, and diversity of our team at Kaiser Permanente Northern California. I'm your host, Carrie Owen Pleets. Today, we're here to learn about self-compassion or the art of being kind to ourselves. At KP, we are all so driven to help others. This episode focuses on being more gracious to ourselves as we go about our daily lives. I have been thinking about this concept for a while, and I was struck by a recent article in the Washington Post by Christopher W.T. Miller, MD. His article emphasizes cultivating self-compassion as a key mental health goal. I'm delighted to have the article's author with us on Live Well and Thrive Today. Christopher W.T. Miller, MD, is a psychiatrist and psychoanalyst practicing at the University of Maryland Medical Center and an associate professor at the University of Maryland School of Medicine. Welcome to Live Well and Thrive, Chris.
1: Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: Yeah, it's great to have you. So, all right, let's jump right into this. How does being kinder to oneself contribute to better mental health?
1: It's such an important question. And I've given this a lot of thoughts in the buildup to writing the article. And over the course of my career, one thing that strikes me is it's a very odd idea for some people. It goes against the grain of how we're taught to live. In some Mm -hmm. ways, we're really used to pushing ourselves constantly without really thinking about it. And there's a built-in idea, which I think is common in our culture, that the job is never done. Mm -hmm. And it's not only never done, but it's never good enough in some ways. So the lens that we are viewing our day-to-day life through is that what we've done thus far is incomplete and it's flawed. So it really makes it difficult to have a sense of accomplishment or to actually feel good about ourselves I think the idea of self-kindness, it counters this to a degree. It creates space where we're actually allowed to feel good about ourselves, but it really might feel off limits for some people, depending on just what our basic framework is for how we think of ourselves. We don't really only start recording conscious memories when we're about three, but for people who have been in adverse environments or are in dangerous environments, they start encoding things earlier because they're being forced to pay attention to what's going on because it might be a survival strategy in a way. So their brain actually has to speed up its development. Forgetting is a luxury, and Mm -hmm. it's a luxury of an environment that's supportive, And so the brain does prioritize what's necessary for survival. There is an evolutionary aspect in terms of why it is that we tend to focus on the negative more predominantly because Mm. we need to be attentive to what's going on. And if it's a world that's dangerous or adverse, we're trying to gain some mastery to ensure that we're going to be able to keep living. It's one way to survive. Mm, Heavy duty
0: stuff. Yeah, like how you grew up. And your perspectives. I think this is just a perfect conversation as we are now at January 25th is when we're recording this. And I think that's past the 21 day mark from New Year's resolutions where we start to beat ourselves up for not keeping those resolutions. So how does focusing on perceived limitations contribute to feelings of just unworthiness?
1: It's really easy for us to get stuck in our own heads and to just hyper focus on the things that we think we might have done wrong. And, you know, our sense of selves is often very tied to how we think other people view us. So if we grew up with people around us who are very critical and demanding, the message that we might have consolidated is to think in certain ways, including treating ourselves in certain ways. A child may limit themselves according to what they think their caregiver wants, which sacrifices Mm -hmm. something of their individuality. And they start thinking of themselves in a very narrow way. And that can be carried into adulthood. And it's one of the things that I mentioned in the column about the inner voice that we take in. Oftentimes, it's a voice which is the voice of the parent or the voice of the caregiver, something that serves as a bit of a compass, an internal reference point. How should I be thinking about myself in this situation and how should I behave based on that orientation?
0: Right. And so you're talking about this inner voice and I think we all can relate to it, or at least I can definitely do that. So what role does the inner voice play in shaping kind of self-demands and how can individuals, any of us model a more maybe benign inner voice, maybe a nicer voice that is just about maybe some self-kindness?
1: That's a great question.
0: Help me out here, doctor. It's not easy.
1: (laughs) I know. I know. I I think we all need to find good ways of doing that for ourselves because it's, It takes time. And unfortunately, we can end up in environments sometimes that just reinforce the negative views we have, whether it's in the workplace, academic settings, and relationships. And oftentimes we're shaping our outside environment to mirror our internal world in a way. So I would say that all of us are individuals that deserve to exist beyond anybody's definition of us or beyond anybody's interpretation of us. The first step is really to pause and to try to find some space where a different way of thinking about ourselves can actually be nurtured. There are a lot of different routes in which to do that. I do psychotherapy, psychoanalytic psychotherapy, and that's certainly one of those. I think it just creates a space where we can look at our life story, look at our trials, tribulations, suffering, and we'll come in contact with the fact that we were doing the best in difficult situations. And we'll come in contact with our resilience and with our sense of accomplishment, as opposed to this idea that we just need to keep pushing ourselves and keep running towards a place which may or may not exist and which we may or may not ever reach. This does allow for some compassion towards ourselves. And it is a process. Some people do need to give themselves permission to show themselves kindness because it might feel so forbidden based on those early messages that they received. Mm.
0: I, I mention this often is just have grace with yourself mm-hmm. and it sounds a little bit of like what you're saying for some people nurturing self-compassion probably comes very naturally and for others it's probably a learned skill set and you mentioned about obviously seeking help and therapy and I'm wondering how does self-compassion gaining greater strength of self-compassion drive positive attitudes towards others? You know, we're in the care giving business. So I'd love to get your thoughts there.
1: Yeah. I think that one of the benefits of the kind of therapy I do, for instance, is very exploratory, but it doesn't necessarily offer any immediate solutions. What?
0: You can't give me immediate (laughs)
1: solutions? (laughs) Yeah. I I reflect on it with patients. I understand how desirable something like that would be, but I can also appreciate that if it were that simple, you wouldn't need me. Yeah. Uh, You know, you probably would have come to the answer a long time ago and it does take a lot of time and a lot of unpacking and just getting to know each other before the person even really feels comfortable opening up. But I think as that starts to happen, the person gains a much broader perspective of themselves. We're very used to thinking of ourselves in these all or none ways, but we all have a subjective richness. We all have a life story that's worth knowing and it can't be encapsulated by anything that straightforward. As we start to create more of a narrative and understand that behind everything we feel and everything we think, there's a story. We start to dimensionalize ourselves a lot more. It's almost like it's inevitable that we're going to start thinking about other people in broader ways, too. It starts to break the mold of how we think about people and life. And it starts to become pretty hard to view things in these extreme or polarized ways. There's much more that connects us than what actually distinguishes us. And we start to think just like there's anxieties, disappointments, things that have led me to behave the way I do that's probably true for this person who's in front of me too, you know, behind any act of kind of aggression or anger, there's often a story of pain that's informing it.
0: Mm. We're talking about having grace with yourself and it's have grace with yourself, then you're more likely to have grace with others and to be more open to their life story. That's absolutely true for all of our caregivers too. Everybody has a story, all of our members do. There's so much also within the article, you talked about the connection to brain science. What areas of the brain mediate the connection between awareness of one's emotions and responsiveness to the emotional state of others?
1: Yeah, interestingly, there's an overlap in the areas of the brain that create representations of ourselves and representations of other people. So on a brain map level, there's not a clear divide between where we end and where the other person begins. And this becomes more and more true the more intimate a relationship is. And it makes sense because as we're growing up and learning about the world, we imitate the actions of other people. We imitate the speech patterns of other people. You know, a child imitating the parents and copying their movements. We start to make sense of our world through their eyes and how they're responding to it. So we utilize the other person to create our sense of reality. Who we become is really connected to what we've internalized from other people. There are several different areas of the brain involved in this. I think that one that's interesting to underline is called the anterior insula. It's located deep within the lateral side, the outside portion of the brain. And it's called insula because it's supposed to be like a little island. It's a little kind of split off on that part of the brain. The insula is involved with mapping our awareness and our sense of our own body as well as what our emotional state is in any given moment. So it's a pretty holistic area. But it's also involved with what we might think of as the visceral or the gut emotions. When mm-hmm. we're trying to remember something and we say, it's right there, it's on the tip of my tongue. say that quality. all the time. <laughs> and that, then that's the insula firing. Yeah, um, at least that, that's one of the theories that the insula is involved in those tip of the tongue moments. So it's involved in visceral emotions and things that are very strong, things like shame, things like guilt, things like aversion but also emotions that are more affiliative, like love and cooperativeness, connectedness. So the same area of the brain that gives us awareness of ourselves is the same that allows us to attune and feel connected to other people on a very raw level. So it's another instance of how awareness of ourselves and awareness of other people go hand in hand.
0: And Chris, when I'm thinking about this, we do have a lot of conversations around the importance of getting to kind of higher brain thinking and getting out of that reptile brain. And is it true Mm -hmm. to say that the insula is not maybe firing when you're in reptile brain and fight or flight? Is that accurate? So it's going too deep here? (laughs)
1: No, I think it's a great question. The insula and some areas around the insula, they're like a gateway to our emotional world, but also giving access to some of those higher brain areas, in a sense. If we're in a place of peace and of serenity and well-being, we don't want to be cutting off our emotions either, we want to be in touch with them. Mm -hmm. So I think it's about that area of the brain firing just right, the insula firing just right so that we can still Mm. feel at ease, think our way through things. When the insula is firing too much in a way that it really shouldn't, and because it maps how our body's feeling, it's actually giving us a sense of danger. So in conditions such as depression and anxiety, there are some studies that have shown that if the insula is firing too much, it actually might give us what's called a body prediction error, Mm, which is giving the idea that we're in danger, something's going on, and the person who's very anxious, they can't really settle down. It's a prediction error because there's nothing actually in the environment that's threatening. It's just the activity that their brain is producing that's giving them that sense in depression, where you can have just that hollow feeling or Mm. something that's just very gut-wrenching and very all-consuming in a way. Part of that might be that the insula is firing a little bit too much when it shouldn't. It's an area of the brain that can do many different things, but when it's firing too much in situations that are leading to symptoms, that can also be a problem. I
0: think you're talking about kind of, it's just right. We're going for our full Goldilocks here. <laughs> I'm thinking about our busy teams that are on the floors or out in the clinics. How can our busy teams put all of this into practice to hopefully nurture a more thoughtful and appreciative outlook for both kind of individual well-being and just these positive social interactions?
1: Yeah, that's the key question, because in this current climate, staying busy. Staying in this very stressed place, it can really take over. And I think that's just a recipe for self criticism and feeling disconnected. You know, it can be easy to lose sight of the larger picture. There will never be a time ever, no matter what, when all the work is done forever. No. So, (laughs) unfortunately, so pushing ourselves endlessly without allowing for a moment's pause won't change that. And that means that wherever that demand is coming from, whether it's an internal voice or a boss or whoever, the person who never finds time to rest won't be able to endure the storm for very long or stay in the game for too long. The idea that the solution is external is part of how we get stuck in this. And it's like trying to pay off the debt using the wrong currency in a way. We're looking in all these places which are never necessarily going to heal that wound. So what we really need to do is cultivate a sense of accomplishment and satisfaction from within. Remembering the idea that our worth as a person is not something that needs to be proven no matter what we have been told or are currently being told. And I think this can be very difficult because we're very used to defining ourselves according to how other people think of us. This is something that I may ask patients at times. Who are you outside of the relationship that's so defining for you? And it's very difficult to answer. Because that's not how people are necessarily used to thinking of themselves, especially when they're constantly looking for that mirroring to give them a sense of grounding and validation. But it falls apart quickly because it's not coming from within. So giving ourselves a break, giving ourselves permission not to be perfect, and actually feeling good about what we've achieved, that can help us find that space in which we can feel good enough as opposed to striving for some ideal that may be impossible.
0: You are worthy. You are worthy, yeah. and that comes from within. Absolutely. As you were saying that, I'm thinking about teenage daughters and what they're going through in high school. I'm thinking about the new nurse who's just hitting the floor and feeling maybe uncomfortable and living through challenges, and then staff who are retiring and maybe have put so much of their self-worth attached to accomplishments at work and wondering where their worth comes from. And I'm hearing you say it's really just, it's internal work. You are good enough. There's no Perfection so Chris one of the things we talk a lot about on this podcast is the art of gratitude and some take gratitude easy and others struggle hearing good things and I'm wondering if you could speak a little bit more to that do people struggle like to yeah. accept good things that are said about them?
1: I think it's very common actually because we tend to be very hard on ourselves. We're conditioned in certain ways to have sometimes a very narrow perspective on ourselves and again if we grew up with people in our lives who were very invalidating of who we are, we may have the sense that the things we do wrong are the only things that ever really get attention or are the only things that are actually consequential. And it's just something that can push us to try to overcompensate, to push us to work endlessly. We have this idea that the flawed parts of us are much more in focus than the good parts. So when somebody maybe says something that we've done well, it can be very hard to take that in because that isn't part of the narrative. That isn't part of how we've constructed our idea of ourselves. And it can be easy to be suspicious of that or to dismiss that. We tend to talk it away. That's our default. And I think we can learn something about that. You know, we were thinking, oh, you're just being humble. But, you know, maybe it's very hard for you to actually take this in because you don't believe this about yourself.
0: Yeah, I actually, I can relate to this having done some evaluations. I was talking to some of these amazing team members who are absolutely fantastic. And they would had a 360 evaluation. So feedback from all sides mm-hmm. and of the feedback is amazing. And there's one like small teeny little comment. And the first thing they highlight is the tiny little comment. I'm like, 99.9% is amazing. Soak that in, (laughs) like spend time with that. But it's universal, especially with a very high performing team in Northern California. And we are problem solvers, right? Mm -hmm. Our entire role is to solve problems and get people healthy. So we go straight towards the problem. And so I think even for our team, it's maybe even, no, 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 let's take a step back and see the big picture and how amazing you are and how amazing amazing all of this work is. So thank you. It's a great reminder. Mm-hmm. Of course. I say that about my team, but I did the same thing on my evaluation too. So <laughs> I know, I know. Yeah, I am I'm learning and I will be ever evolving into creating more grace for myself. I always ask our guests to close with how their work has impacted them personally and professionally. Obviously, professionally quite a bit. But what about a personal level?
1: Yeah, it was an unexpected personal influence. When I chose this profession, I knew that working in mental health, you have to bring a lot of yourself, but I don't think we ever really know just how much it is going to impact us until we're actually doing it. So no matter what somebody might be doing, there's a story to be learned behind it, especially when there's a tense or terse kind of situation. I really try to remember that that other person, maybe they're interacting with me in a way because they're feeling nervous or they're feeling anxious. They're feeling pressured in some way, and that might be driving their way of relating with me. Whatever it is that they're doing right now, it makes sense in their mind. That is the way that they need to interact with me. And there might be something about me that they're responding to. So I always try to keep an empathic mind in whatever interaction I'm having, because I think that actually helps us find some collaborative space. And that'll help the other person feel heard. It'll help them feel understood. It can oftentimes mitigate any tension that might be going on or soften it. And we can think about things together as opposed to feeling like we're on opposite sides. And once we're able to establish that connection, again, we start to notice we have much more in common here. We're on the same side here Mm -hmm. and the divide shouldn't really define us nor should it really be sustained. So I found that very useful in the clinical work, but also in everyday life. I think that I've really learned to take a step back create a space where i can really try to get where the other person's coming from
0: i love that you highlighted that just there's common humanity Mm -hmm. and through the conversation it's easier to get to that place of finding common humanity if you're giving yourself grace and seeing your own Mm -hmm. Um, self-worth i love that So, Chris, thank you for just an incredible conversation, incredible perspective. And I know our team at KP will benefit tremendously from your learnings as they're taking care of our patients all across Northern California, and we will all be better for it. So thank you so much. Thank you
1: as well. It was a pleasure being here. It was very nice speaking with you.
0: As always, I invite you to share what's on your mind. Ask a question or suggest a topic or guest. Send it to at kp.org. And whether you're listening on your commute or during a down moment, keep those comments coming. And of course, I'd like to thank you, our listener, for tuning in to Live Well and Thrive, a podcast recognizing the hard work, dedication, and diversity of our team at Kaiser Permanente. I'm Carrie Owen Pleats, and we'll see you next time.